for leading us in our song worship this morning to sing a song like that, to be reminded of who God is, that God is love, and to be reminded that we as his children are to be ones that are loving those that are around us. Certainly is a good thought for us to not only sing today, but to sing every day in our lives and to live that truth out in our life each day. Singing songs like that, anyway, for me, kind of gives me a foretaste of what it's going to be like when we are all together. Uh, God's children, God's people of all the ages, of all nations and races and backgrounds that we will all be together one day surrounding his throne and praising and worshiping and adoring him as our God and our Father in heaven. If you were here at the nine o'clock hour this morning, you were treated, I think, to a a great sermon that our brother Gavin uh, gave to us, uh, his first sermon here with us this morning. And uh, kind of reminded me of myself when I I got started preaching. I remember as I uh, was just fresh out of college and moved to Greenwood, Arkansas, close to Fort Smith to uh, work with a congregation there for a year. And Brother Harold Turner uh, was preaching there and he was a lot older than I am at this particular point. He was about 60 years old, I believe, and I was just 23 or so coming out of college. Uh, But uh, he was a great help and a great mentor to me as I was uh, beginning the work of a gospel preacher. And uh, he would say to me uh, at several points throughout that year that uh, I'm just amazed. I don't know where you get all this information being 23 years old and and how you don't stumble over words and all of these kinds of things. And I I think he was being a little bit uh, generous uh, in his assessment of my work because I, I know that I had a long ways to go. But here I sit this morning listening to our young brother, and uh, he doesn't stumble over words. His mind is sharp. He is well prepared and presented his lesson, I think, in, a, in an excellent way and gave us some really serious things to think about. And so as I've already told uh, one of our sisters this morning, I'm going to have to step up my game, I guess. <laughs> Uh, But I am certainly glad that uh, Gavin and Elaine are here with us and uh, looking forward to our work together, just he and I on on a preacher-to-preacher basis. But I'm excited as he and and Elaine are excited to be here and to uh, begin their work among us as well. In the days of Noah, the Bible says to us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, And that every intent of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. In the days of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 17, our Lord and Savior said as he looked into his generation, he said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? And then on the day of Pentecost, as Peter and the other apostles were standing there before that audience of thousands of Jews, and Peter, it seems, was the one, as he always did, who took the lead among the apostles, and he spoke up and he preached the gospel of Christ there upon that day. And at the end of that sermon, as the crowd was asking, what do we need to do in order to be saved? Peter was urging his audience in Acts 2 and verse 40 to be saved from this perverse generation. And even as our brother Kerry read for us a few moments ago as we began our worship to God from Philippians chapter 4, Paul was addressing their Christians. He was addressing those that had made the decision to come and follow Jesus. 
and telling them that they have to be different than the rest of the world. They have to be shining as lights in the world. But he says, I want you to shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. While the days in which we live are in many days, that they are different from the days that have gone before us. We can think about that maybe from a scientific standpoint. We can think about that from a technology standpoint. We can think about that from a transportation standpoint. We can think about all the advantages and the luxuries really that we have that generations gone by have not had. In other ways, I believe our generation, the days in which we live, are exactly the same as those that have preceded ours. For just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Jesus, just like in the days of Paul and Peter, evil still exists today. And so for those of us who have made the decision that we're going to live our life as lights in the world, that we are going to live for our Lord and Savior, we must do so in this kind of environment. We didn't pick the world in which we, we were born into, did we? We didn't pick the time in which we were born into. Noah didn't pick the world in which he was born into. Jesus didn't pick the world. Peter didn't pick the world in which he was born into, the generation that he came into the world. And neither do we. We must, if we're going to live for the Lord, do so in an evil and perverse generation. What do we do with that as Christians? How do we interact with the environment that we find ourselves living in today? How do we answer evil that is all around us? Today, for a few moments, I want us to think about three Christ-like ways that we as followers of Christ can answer evil. This is not by any means an exhaustive list. This is not to say that if I don't mention something, some way that we can respond or answer to evil this morning, that that, that, that is not a scriptural, biblical way for us to answer evil But these are three ways that I have thought of as we think about the example of Jesus Christ that we can be like Him as we live in this evil and perverse generation. The first way as we think about Jesus Christ and some instructions that He gave even to His disciples in the time in which He was living is as we see evil around us and even as we are sometimes tempted to uh, give in to evil, we are tempted to sin and we are tempted to just look like the rest of the world that for those of us who are followers of Christ, we need to realize that we can pray and we should pray for deliverance. Jesus addressed this vital truth for his followers very early on in his earthly mission. If you have your New Testament this morning with you, I would invite you to open to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, of course, uh, this chapter begins... Uh, really going back, I think, to chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus makes a statement there to his audience and to us, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to put yourself under the rule and reign of God himself. And so he gives some examples of that particular truth or principle when we come to chapter 6. And he says, you shouldn't be showing your righteousness just to be praised by men or to be rewarded by men, but you should be doing righteous things so that your Father in heaven notices those. And one day he will reward you in in his way and in his time. He mentions here about us giving uh, of our physical financial blessings to those who are in need. He mentions here about fasting. 
But he also mentions here about praying. And in that discussion about prayer, he gives us what we could call the model prayer. And I want you to just notice one thing that Jesus says that we should be praying for on a pretty regular basis there at verse 13. He says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here in this model prayer, Jesus is teaching us to not only ask our Father not to lead us into temptation, but He is asking, telling us that we need to ask our Father to deliver us, to rescue us, if you will, from evil. And it may be, depending upon what translation you're reading from this morning, that it may say here the words of Jesus that we are to petition our Father to deliver us from temptation, but also uh, to not lead us into temptation, rather, but to deliver us from the evil one. Whichever the translation should be, whichever is the better rendering there of the original text, I think the point is the same, that we are asking our God, our Father, don't uh, lead us into a temptation that we are not able to overcome. And of course, we can think about passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. God has made us the promise that he's always going to provide a way of escape for us if we so choose to take it. But to deliver us, to rescue us from evil, to deliver us from the evil one himself, Satan, our enemy. While the Lord's words here in Matthew 6 and verse 13, I think certainly have application to a wide variety of circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in in life. It may very well be that Christ intended for these words to have specific application to what he is discussing here. And if you notice in the verse before the one we just read and a couple of verses after that, well, what is Jesus talking about here as we pray to our Father in heaven? Notice what he says in verse 12. He says that as we talk to our God that we need to ask him to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then at verse 14, Jesus goes on to say, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It may be that, yes, this, this asking our Father to not lead us into temptation when we find ourselves in a tempting situation where we might succumb to that temptation that we pray for him to deliver us from that evil, to deliver us from Satan himself. That has a general application. Many different situations that we could find ourselves in being tempted and drawn away from God. But it seems to me anyway, and you can just take this for what it's worth, because of what Jesus says about forgiveness there in verse 12 and what he comes back to in verses 14 and 15, that he may have in mind specifically applying not being led into temptation and delivering us from evil when we find ourselves in a situation where someone has wronged us, when we need to forgive so that we can be forgiven. When we find ourselves uh, uh, surrounded by evil actions or evil people, or even when Satan is trying to overwhelm us perhaps with one temptation after another, Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew chapter 6 that we can and we must as his Disciples, pray for deliverance. And then, of course, again, as Paul encourages us and reminds us and instructs us there in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, we have to look for the way of escape. God is always going to provide that for us, but we have to find that way of escape. Sometimes when someone has wronged us, that we can say, well, that person has sinned against me, but how do we react to that? 
If we react in a way that I'm not going to forgive that person, I'll, I'll never forget what they have done to me. I'll just hold that grudge against them the rest of their life. I'm never speaking to that person again. I'm not going to try to mend the fences. No reconciliation. I'm not pursuing any of that. We need to pray even in those times and maybe even especially in those times that God would not lead us into temptation, but he would deliver us from evil. Something interesting connected to this thought of praying for deliverance as we live with evil all around us. I think about the words of Jesus as he prayed what I consider to be the greatest prayer, at least that we have recorded in scripture while he was here on earth. That prayer before he was about to be arrested and crucified uh, on the cross. In John chapter 17, just notice one thing that is said here that Jesus says as he talks to his father. Verse 15, he says, but now uh, rather, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Here is Jesus earnestly praying for himself. He is earnestly praying for his apostles. But then in these few verses, the next few verses here, there's kind of a transition, I think, in his prayer. And not, now he's not only just praying for the 11 at this point, but now he is praying for all disciples. And that includes you and I. And here is Jesus praying for us, and he did not ask his father to just take those who would make the decision to follow him out of the world, just remove them from that situation entirely so that they can't be led into temptation, so that there is no evil one for them to have to battle with. But he did ask his father to keep those who were his disciples safe, to keep them from being overpowered or overcome by the evil one himself. And one way that we as Christians find deliverance from the evil world around us and from the evil one himself is to make sure that we are immersing ourselves in the word of God. And we are truly being people who are set apart from our evil world. To me, that fits great into this context of Jesus's prayer here. As we did with the model prayer there in Matthew chapter six, let's notice some verses surrounding that particular request of the father there in verse 15. Go back to verse 14. Jesus here is praying again for those who were his, his disciples. And he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then verse 16 down through verse 19. Jesus goes on to say that they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So as he is asking his father, making this request of his father in verse 15, to not take them out of the world, but to keep them as they live in this evil world, to keep them from the evil one, uh, Jesus is thinking here about how is that going to be possible. And I believe it's in these few verses that we have read that he is requesting that the Father would sanctify them, set them apart from the world in his word, in his truth. And so not that we should isolate ourselves from the world. Jesus taught the opposite of that, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. But that we need to be people who are really getting into the word of God <laughs> And the word of God needs to be getting into us. We need to be folks, as we look at the evil that is going on around us, our first response really should be to pray. That we ought to be praying for our evil world, but we also ought to be praying for ourselves that the Lord would deliver us from that evil. The second Christ-like answer to evil 
is that we need to be people who are loving our enemies. While Jesus gave this answer to evil in the Sermon on the Mount, and you may already be thinking there at the end of Matthew chapter 5 in your mind, he also spoke about the need for us to love our enemies in what has been called the Sermon on the Plain. And I want us to look at his words there from the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you have your Bible to turn there to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, and notice a few things that Jesus uh, instructed his disciples then and now as to how they could answer their evil and perverse generation, how we can answer ours too. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 27. Jesus says there, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want to want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. In instructing his audience then and instructing us today to love our enemies, uh, Jesus tells us what that, what that looks like practically in our life. He doesn't just give us the command or the instruction to love our enemies. But he gets very specific here. He says, you know, if someone takes something that is yours, you, you just give it to them. You, you go the extra mile, as is recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says what it means to truly love our enemies is to pray for them. That's, that's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe we are kind of like the sons of thunder sometimes and we're maybe praying for our enemies, but we're praying that fire would come down from heaven and consume them. We, we just want those people out of our life. We don't want to have to deal with them anymore. But Jesus says to us here, no, you pray for them. You, you pray that, that their eyes might be opened, that they could see the light of the gospel of Christ and they could come to know me. He says what loving our enemies looks like is doing good to them. When our kind of natural human reaction or response to someone doing evil to us is just to do evil to them, to get them back, to pay them back in kind, or even to do greater evil to them than they have done to us. And Jesus says, no, that, that's not the way it is. If you're going to come and follow me, if you're going to respond to evil that is around you, and maybe you have even been the recipient of yourself, you have to pray for your enemies. You have to do good for them. You have to bless them, not to curse them, but you have to bless them. He says, you need to be like your Father in heaven. You need to be kind and merciful to them. Uh, as Matthew recorded these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the last couple of verses there in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew reminds us that, that God brings up the same sun for those who are good and those who are evil. God causes the rain to fall from the sky for those who are good and those who are evil. That, that God shows mercy, not that God approves of the lifestyle of the choices that those who are evil are making, but God still loves them. God has created them. They are His children. They are made in His image. 
But he says we need to be kind and merciful to them. In essence, as Jesus says to us there at verse 31, we need to be practicing the golden rule toward those who are our enemies. This this is not shallow teaching. (laughs) This is not something that is easy for us to do. But this is how Jesus himself dealt with evil in the time in which he lived here upon the earth. And so he is instructing us to follow his example. While we certainly can do all of these things for our enemies, we can do good to them, maybe uh, give them some financial help or provide food for them or shelter or provide for their physical needs. We can bless them in a physical sense. We can show kindness and mercy to them on a physical level. We can do all of those things physically. I believe of more importance is doing these things spiritually. It is seeing that our enemies are not just our enemies, but they are truly enemies of God if they are opposed to His will. And to pray for their salvation as even Paul prayed for his own Jewish brethren's salvation. It is to do good and to be kind and to be merciful to our enemies by teaching them the gospel of Christ, by giving them the good news that Jesus Christ has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is giving this instruction here to those of us who are his disciples about how we are to answer evil in our world. We don't answer evil with evil. We answer evil with good. We answer evil with love, even for our enemies. But these weren't just good words that Jesus was speaking because the one who spoke these words is also the greatest example of one who truly loved his enemies. Jesus had enemies as he lived here on earth, those that did not like him much at all. And many of those enemies were really those who should have embraced him as being the Christ, the Son of God. Well, Brother Gavin has already pointed our minds this morning in the earlier session to this passage here in Matthew chapter 23. And like he said, we're not going to read the whole thing. We don't have time to do that this morning. But I want you to just notice where Jesus begins here at verse 13. As he issues in in this chapter, in my mind, one, one of the most scathing rebukes of any people that he ever came in contact with. It wasn't the woman caught in adultery. It wasn't the Samaritan woman at the well that had multiple husbands and was living with a man who wasn't her husband. It it wasn't any of those people that, that the religious leadership often looked down upon and said, they are sinners and tax collectors. Don't associate with them. But here Jesus is addressing those who were supposed to know God well, who were supposed to know the scriptures of God well. And he is issuing here in chapter 23 a series of woes to them. And he says at verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And you just continue on, as Gavin was pointing out to us earlier this morning, throughout this text. And it is one woe after another after another. He is calling them hypocrites. He is calling them sons of hell. He is saying that you're just like the generations that have gone before you, just like your forefathers and killing the prophets and not listening to the message of God. You don't want to hear what God has to say. You don't want to repent. And we might think as we read these words of Jesus himself, how in the world does that fit into this point that we're considering here? How in the world is Jesus showing love to his enemies? We might say, and even as our culture is beginning to say today, that's hate speech. (laughs) No, he hates these people. He, He is speaking very harshly to them. 
I don't deny that Jesus' words are very, very pointed because I think he was trying to get the attention of these who were very much blinded. As Jesus said that they were at the end of John chapter 9 after he had healed the blind man. I think we have to come to the end of this chapter and see the motivation of Jesus in saying this. When you come to verse 37, Jesus continues speaking here and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Yes, Jesus can't deny the fact that he spoke some very strong words, some very specific words, pointed words to those who were his enemies. But why did he do that? It is because he loved them. And he loved them so much that he wanted them to know the truth. And he wanted them to repent of their sins. He wanted them to make the decision that so many people that they looked down upon had already made, that they were going to believe that he really was the Christ, the Son of God, that they were going to come and follow him. It's not that Je- because Jesus wanted them to spend eternity in hell. No, he wanted them to spend eternity with him and have access to eternal life. And so love, as our world uses that word and to mean many different things, it is not always a nice, pretty, rosy, uh, sentimental kind of feeling that we have. But true love for other people will tell them the truth. But Jesus, I think, showed the ultimate expression of love for his enemies, and you know this passage well, as he was dying there on the cross. And as he said there in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke at verse 34, let's back up to verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. I know we know this, but just to remind ourselves here that these people are the ones who have crucified Jesus. That these are the ones, maybe all of those standing around the cross had not physically or literally driven the nails through his hands and his feet. But as Peter would later say in the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you, the Jews, you're responsible. may have been the Roman soldiers that actually carried it out, but you, you crucified the Son of God. But then the response of Jesus in verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And as he is asking his father to forgive them, as he is showing love for his enemies here, the end of verse 34, Luke tells us that they're over here casting lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. As Jesus experienced evil, and what I can only imagine, any of us can imagine because we weren't there, but as Jesus experienced evil to its fullest, as he is suffering Tremendously here on the cross. He is practicing what he preached that we read about earlier in Luke chapter 6. He is praying for his father to forgive his ignorant enemies. Are we doing the same today? When someone has wronged us, when we have been the recipient of evil, is that our response? Father, forgive them. I tell you, answering evil with genuine love is something that is very, very difficult. 
And it shows us why, among other characteristics that Jesus possessed as he lived here on earth, why he was meek, why he was humble, that he had the strength of the universe, the power of the universe at his control. And yet he brought that strength under control. And he prayed for his father to forgive his enemies. Answering evil again with genuine love is very difficult. But this is what Jesus calls us to do. The third Christ-like answer to evil in our world is to leave retribution to God. And that is something that can be very difficult for us to do as well. Once you go to the book of Romans for just a moment, we'll think about the example of Jesus in this regard here in just a couple of minutes. But I want us to think about the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. He says to us there, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's interesting to me that in writing in this section, Paul uh, says here in verses 19 and 20, he, he quotes from a couple of Old Testament passages. I believe it's from uh, Deuteronomy and Proverbs. But to me, that is important because it says that these commands that Paul was giving these Christians in the first century and giving to us today, they're not something that is just unique. They're not new commands as far as God is concerned. That these same commands as to how we are to respond to evil, how we are to treat those who would do evil to us is the same as it's always been. That God told even his people of old, the Israelites, that they were to leave vengeance to God. And God said to them, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. This is not new teaching. The, this is the way that God has always wanted his people to respond to evil. Now, having said that, does that mean that as we look at all the evil that is going on in our world, whether we have, have been the recipient of evil personally or whether we just see people that are committing crimes and, and uh, going against the law of the land and going against God's law, does that mean that we just let those who are guilty of evil go free? That there should be no consequence, that, that there should be no punishment for them? I think that is kind of the conclusion that some people in our culture have come to today. Well, everybody's just free to live however they want to, and nobody should ever be punished. Nobody should ever have to deal with any consequence of any action that they have cho chosen. No. We can read other scriptures in the Bible, and we're going to look at one here even in chapter 13, <laughs> that those who have done evil should suffer the consequences. There should be punishment. We have to have laws in order to have an orderly society. But I believe the point that Paul is making to these brethren and to us here is this, that it does, does mean that we should not seek revenge. When someone has done evil to us, or even if we just see evil being done in the world at large, that we don't take it upon ourselves that I'm going to make this right. 
I'm going to put myself in place of God and I'm going to mete out justice as I see fit. Rather, Paul is instructing us here in this text to leave punishment in the hands of a holy and a just God. And in his time and in his way, he will do what is right. This is exactly what Jesus himself did when he experienced evil at, his, at its worst, as we just spoke of as he was hanging on the cross. But Peter draws our minds back to that scene in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, and his opening words here in this section is, for you have been called for this purpose. What, what is our purpose as Christians? We have been called to be like Christ. We have been called to suffer even as Christ suffered. He goes on to tell us there in verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Listen to this last phrase in verse 23, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is how Jesus answered evil. It may have appeared uh, at the moment for those who were there at the cross or even those who were not but knew what was going on in the days to come and they had heard about this man that had claimed to be the Christ of God being crucified on a cross. He had been laid in a tomb and for them, that was the end of the story, that he had been defeated. <laughs> but from God's perspective, there was great victory. How did Jesus defeat evil? Well, Peter reminds us here, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened and insulted, he didn't return those threats and insults. No, he kept entrusting himself to his father. He left all of that in his father's hands. And he is the greatest example for us to follow in this regard. Again, in God's time and in God's way, it may not be, we want justice sometimes today, don't we? <laughs> we want it maybe yesterday. And we want it to be meted out in a certain way. But in God's time and in God's way, God will take vengeance on those who do evil and do not turn away from that evil. And one way that he does that is by using governments, as we read about in the next chapter in Romans chapter 13, that government has been set up and established and ordained by God for being a minister or servant of his to punish those who do evil. Now we know as we look into our world and not just now, but through history, the governments don't always follow the, the uh, standard or the path that God has set them to do. They don't always do the work that God has warned them to do. But nevertheless, that principle, that truth is still true. That God sometimes does use governments to carry out justice. You can read through the Old Testament and you can find that God raised up nations to punish another nation because they were evil and even raising up nations to punish his own people because they had none evil and wouldn't repent. And I believe the same God that did that is the same God that is God today. But even if God chooses not to take vengeance, not to show justice in this life on those who do evil, the Bible reminds us that He certainly will later. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, at verse 6, as this is really an encouragement here to these Christians in Thessalonica who had received the gospel in much tribulation and they were still, it seems, suffering for being Christians. He says, God's taking notice of that and God is going to make things right one day. You're going to be rewarded. You're going to spend eternity in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. 
But on the flip side of that, he says at verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then at verse 8, he says, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I don't think we should be of the mindset to rejoice in that, even as God Himself, I don't believe, is rejoicing. Ezekiel chapter 18 tells us there that God doesn't take any delight. He doesn't find any pleasure in the death of a wicked person. And neither should we be jumping up and down with joy about that. But we ought to know that one day God is going to deal out retribution to those who have devoted their life to doing evil. God will take care of that. We need to be content with that. And we need to be patient with God. And we need to trust that He's going to do what He has said He will do. To leave the punishment of evildoers to God and even sometimes to His earthly ministers, again, it's not always easy for us to do. It is not the way that the world would respond to evil many times. But I believe it is what you and I must do if we are going to truly call ourselves followers of Christ. What about you this morning? As as we live in an evil world, things have have not gotten much better in many regards. Evil still exists. Satan is still the God and the ruler of this world. He's still out there promoting his agenda. How do we respond to evil? Well, I hope this week uh, that you will think about these three responses. Maybe this will spur you to even study the scriptures more and to think about some other scriptural ways that we can respond to evil But we can see a lot of people in our society today who are claiming to be Christians and even some whom, as far as I know, are true Christians that are responding in ways that are not Christ-like. Let us be like Jesus Christ. Let us answer evil by praying to our Father for deliverance if we're being led in that direction ourselves, to love our enemies and to do good to them and then to help them to come out of that as best we can, to leave all of that in God's hands. What about you this morning? The God that we serve, the God that has created us, we are blessed that he is not an evil God. The scriptures tell us over and over again that God is good, that God does good to us. And because God is such a good God, he wants all of us to be with him for eternity. He wants us to be his children, truly his children now. And so if you've not made the decision this morning in your life to become a Christian, a child of God, would you make that decision this very morning? That, that's not going to change all of your circumstances here on earth. That's not going to just remove you somehow from the evil environment in which we find ourselves living. But you will have the help of God himself to overcome that evil and to respond to it in a way that pleases him. If you're not a Christian, would you take that first step to come this morning to confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to repent of your sins and to be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And you can come up as a new creation with a new purpose for living. If as a child of God, you have sinned against God, it may be that you have responded in an evil way to evil that you have experienced. And you may need to just take care of that between you and God, or you may need to Let that be known publicly. You may need the prayers and encouragement and support of your brethren to help you to respond 
in a Christ-like way. Whatever your need might be this morning, if we can help you, if you're in any way at all subject to the invitation of Jesus Christ, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing?